Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Craig Cervillo, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Matthew Miller about his excellent new book, The German Epic in the Cold War. Dr. Miller, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, Dr. Miller, we'd like to begin these, these chats with having the author tell us a little bit about themselves. Sure. Um, I uh, grew up in Pennsylvania and uh, learned German mostly as a high school exchange student where uh, as a teenager, I spent a year in the eastern part of Germany shortly after unification. Uh, in, uh, I was there in 1992 to 93. Uh, it was a pretty exciting time, and that experience sparked a longstanding interest in the cultural, political, and literary history of German-speaking Europe, which I then pursued in my studies, uh, both at the undergraduate and graduate levels. Uh, I did my graduate degree at uh, Columbia University in New York City, uh, worked primarily with Andreas Hussen there, uh, as well as others like Harold Müller and uh, Lydia Gur in the philosophy department. And uh, now I'm uh, located in central New York at Colgate University, which is a small college uh, where I teach uh, German and European studies, and I've been here for about uh, 10 years. Um, is this your first book? Uh, yes, it's the first book that I've authored. I have, an, I have a, a, a previous book that I co-edited on the Danube River, came out a couple of years uh, ago, but this is the, my, my, the first book that I wrote myself. So, uh, so yeah, let's, let's turn to this book. So how, how did you come up with the topic for this book? Uh, right. So I mentioned my graduate work at uh, Columbia University there. I focus mostly on uh, 20th century German literary studies, as well as aesthetics and critical theory and political history. And it's in that context that I first read uh, works by Peter Weiss, Uwe Jonsson, and Alexander Kluge with great interest. Those are the three authors I focus on in the book. Uh, but at the time, I didn't quite have the um, wherewithal, let's say, to fully uh, come to terms with their respective projects. So uh, after, at, when I completed, having completed graduate school and, and, and completed a dissertation on, on Kluge in conjunction with the works of the East German playwright Heiner Müller, I was left with a a kind of unyielding thirst and desire and interest to, to delve deeper into the exciting terrain of some of the most ambitious works of uh, German language literature from the second half of the 20th century. So the three, the three I address in my book are Weiss's The Aesthetics of Resistance, Uwe Jonsson's Anniversaries from, from a Year in the Life of Gesine Krespal, that's the name of the, his main character, and then Alexander Kluge's uh, Chronicle of Feelings, which Kluge published in 2000 as a collection of all of his previously published literary writings, he started uh, writing in the early 60s and then included a lot of uh, stories that he uh, wrote after the what the Germans called the Venda, the transition or the, the political process that led to the unification of, of East and West Germany in, in 1990. Um, so in your in your book title, you, you have it. The subtitle is the Cold War Epic. Can can you describe to us what what you mean by that? Um, maybe we'll start with actually let's start with something more basic. What is an epic? Yeah, well, uh, it's, a, it's a great question and an important question. One to uh, one to uh, uh, highlight in a couple of different ways. In German, there is a very gen in German literary studies, I should say. There is a very general uh, distinction, kind of tripartite distinction between epic works, dramatic works, and lyrical works. So that just serves as a way to separate prose, uh, prose writings from theatrical writings uh, and from poetry, on the other hand. But the, 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 the term that we're, I mean, we're more familiar, many of us in the U.S. or North America are, are, are familiar with the term as an ancient genre of literature. So we, many of us come into, or many undergraduate students come into uh, contact with epics when we're required to read Homer, uh, which they do, do for good uh, reason. And very generally speaking, one can uh, one can note a kind of divide between the between antiquity and modernity with regard to what uh, uh, with regard to the genre of epic. So, it, in modernity, 
you, one could say the ancient epic, the, the things like the Odyssey and the Iliad of Homer, uh, basically become the novel, right? Which is a, is, is, a, is a different genre and and is seemingly more suited to a modern age of uh, social fragmentation, individualization, transcendental homelessness, and all these problems that modernity uh, brings about. And we still speak, interestingly enough, about epic novels. And in fact, some of the authors that I uh, some of the, the authors uh, that I discuss in my book also describe their works as novels. But I actually uh, wanted to, I mean, I, sorry, I should say epic novel, of course, refers usually to a novel that's very long, right? And mm. uh, and with the epic, there's definitely a question of scope that's important. But I uh, I tried to use chapter one in my book to advance additional distinctions between the the genre of the novel and that of that modern epic uh, in order to uh, give readers things to um, uh, to hold on to, and I can walk through some of those if if you like. That might yeah be, uh, yeah that would be that would be helpful if you could give us a little context as to as to what the difference is. Sure. So the one distinction that I think is important is the is the is the collective the collective dimensions of epic versus the individual or individualistic dimensions of. Uh, of the modern novel, so the, in the in the in the in a very influential definition that I cite in my book with, by the German philosopher uh, Hegel, the, he underscores the the ancient epic's task to kind of narrate the story of a whole people or a whole epoch, and and one sees that uh, one sees how he derives his definition very very quickly from from thinking about things like uh, Homer's uh, Homer's works. Uh, in the modern epic, the, 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 that epic genre under the conditions of modernity, there is no longer there are no longer these uh, whole whole or self-contained entities that seem to lend themselves su- to such narration. Rather, the the epic, the modern epic that I describe, uh, is situated at the kind of fissures of 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 a world disorder, and that has to do uh, that has to do with the situation in the Cold War that I'll that I'll speak a little bit more about. But I. Uh, just to highlight the other part of it, so if the so if the epic is more oriented towards collective experiences, the novel has been described as more individ more individualized. And there's a there are I cite relevant literary uh, theorists who talk about this. But what I'm interested in showing is how the modern epic is actually capable and keen on moving beyond individualism and individual in- categories of like the of the 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 self-contained subject in order to uh, narrate uh, larger aspects of society and how it works. Um, and so the Cold War epic specifically uh, situates itself uh, at these fissures between the first and second worlds, between the Western capitalist world and the Eastern socialist world, and 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 moves outward from there to kind of to kind of tell stories about uh, about a, kind of uh, an entire world condition, uh, let's say. Um, it usually fails to do that, right? There's a great uh, aspiration to tell the whole tale of of modernity, but uh, that, of course, is too gargantuan a task for any single work of literature to do. The point that I try to underscore is that there there is an orientation towards uh, what literary theorists have described as totality. There's an orientation to try to tell the whole tale or as much as possible about one's uh, given situation as possible, and that gives rise to a kind of innovative realism that I discuss in the book. Um, if someone were to ask you why the epic is an important element of study or important thing to study, what would you tell them? I would point to the features that I uh, highlight in the book, such as this uh, aspiration to, to map society uh, in creative ways, uh, that these techniques uh, serve both to locate an individual or a community's place in a in a complex world, and then uh, direct literature to fathoming, along with uh, uh, philosophical and scientific discourses, uh, the different ways in which society works and challenges people. So that's that's a key feature I think of Epic that's in, that I uh, highlight throughout. Mm-hmm. And then another key feature, or there are a couple more actually I'd like to mention. One, there's a kind of historicizing imperative. So there's a there is a one of the questions that I uh, worked on uh, in 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 writing the book was well why does epic emerge at certain points right and I found 
there that uh, in, in, in the context that I'm talking about, the 1945 constitutes really a rupture in civilization. Uh, or to put it more generally, I think that fascism itself or the Nazi terror constitute kind of ruptures in civilization that have to be dealt with in various various ways. And so for all three writers in different ways, 1945 really constitutes a historical watershed, uh, a moment of, of a kind of like of a before and after that that uh, that one has to come to terms with, right? And so what each of them does in, in his own ways to, is to step back from the present, try to reset the imagination under co- conditions of great duress and figure out how literature might emerge anew to tell stories uh, about the horrors that, uh, that's, that the Nazi terror subjected uh, uh, much of Europe and, and, and other parts of the world uh, to. So that's an important part they do this in very different ways. What one thing we can talk about, perhaps, is the are the different media techniques that they use. So there's a kind of medial plurality going on in the modern epic. There is multi there are multimedial techniques. There each epic sets itself in relation to other forms of uh, non literary discourse, which it grapples with and which it sometimes relies on. Uh, and then another thing is that the uh, the epics also uh, they want to teach. There's a kind of educational uh, impulse. Uh, to the to the modern epic, at least in the way that these three writers uh, deal with it, and um, that's the kind of, they set up scenarios of learning that are both uh, very instructive but also uh, wonderfully pleasurable. And so uh, that's something else that I tease out of their works across the different chapters of the book. Yeah, I, I definitely want to get back to the to the different media, mm-hmm. um, particularly with Klug. But before we get there, we'll. Um, I, I want to talk about the, the authors individually, but um, sure. I do want to follow up on something you said about 45 being sort of a, a watershed you know, date. Yeah. Um, just very quickly, when were all three of these individuals um, born? What years? Uh, the, so Weiss is the oldest of the three. He was born in uh, 1916. Uh, Kluge and uh, Jonsen were born around 1930. Uh, but they all started writing shortly after the uh, construction of the Berlin Wall. It's fair to say, and I, um, and the Berlin Wall kind of the construction of the Berlin Wall in 1961 kind of uh, is, is a marker that begins the second period of the Cold War, let's say, which uh, seems to freeze this situation of uh, geopolitical opposition between the blocs, between the capitalist U.S. and Western Western Europe and and the Soviet Union in the East. Uh, that looks like a kind of stalemate that continued for a long period of time. And each of the authors uh, starts writing and working in that situation. But they're doing two things. Each of the epics does, they, ha- they have kind of two, there are two main points of orientation in each of the epics. The one point of the or- orientation is, the ta- it involves or, or involves the task of coming to terms with World War II and the, and the Holocaust and Germany's responsibility uh, for, for genocide, right? And the second. The second orientation is to the present, right? Living in the shadows of World War, living amidst a, a, the Cold War, which is a divided, uh, where Germany is divided, where Europe is divided, where the globe is divided between these uh, dif- uh, different political and ideological systems. And on the one hand, that situation, that's a very kind of overwhelming and complex situation. On the other hand, the primacy of uh, political and economic uh, constellations made it uh, perhaps easier than today to pinpoint different uh, the, the pinpoint the positions of individuals, their political options, their uh, uh, their their uh, kind of uh, cultural imaginaries, uh, and so on. And so uh, the Cold War context is is, is uh, impacts each work very uh, starkly. Yeah, the reason I, I asked about their birth dates is I was I was curious as to how each one of them experienced um, fascism. Yes. Um, I, I think, I mean, as we'll continue to talk about, the Cold War is obviously extremely important in each of their experiences. Um, but uh, Vice was, he had, must have had a much more complete experience with fascism. You, the other two were born in the 30s, so they were children. Right, exactly. Um, so can you, can you give us a little compare and contrast of how that might have impacted Vice as opposed to the other two or how they experienced Nazism impacted what they did later. Yes, absolutely. That's, it's very important because uh, it's very interesting. Peter Weiss uh, liked to highlight the fact that he was never actually German. His father was born in the in Austria-Hungary and later on he had the fa- his father had 
uh, Czechoslovakian citizenship, and Weiss, and uh, his father was also of a Jewish Jewish background, and so Weiss, uh, with his family, went into exile in the 30s. I think uh, Weiss reached Sweden in 1939, before the war began, uh, and and as a young person, and 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 his parents were were also had also been forced to relocate there, and so he resided in Stockholm, uh, which he considered his place of exile, and then home in a, in a sense uh, until his passing there in 1982. So, uh, for these reasons, Weiss's work is um, much more heavily impacted by a kind of bi- by the biographical experience of fascism and it's of course interesting that that the book that his main book the aesthetics of resistance is really focused on writing or, or it's focused on kind of the unwritten story of international resistance to german and european fascisms and so and we can talk about that more uh but that the 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 impact the biographical impact of of fascism is is much more present in weiss's work although must be underscored curiously uh, it's Jonsen's anniversaries, which deals much more explicitly and intensively with Germany's uh, culpability for the for the Holocaust uh, than Weiss. Weiss actually focuses more on the politics of the anti-fascist resistance rather than uh, the suffering of of European Jews. Although that is also, of course, an, an important element in his in his aesthetics of resistance. Do any of the authors have sort of family firsthand experience with sort of the horrors of fascism where they, did they have relatives in concentration camps or um, did they participate? Did any relatives participate or collaborate, I guess? Uh, the short, the, for the second question, the short answer is no. Uh, Weiss, of co- as Weiss's family were, were, of course, displaced. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head. I'm sure there were family members uh, who were persecuted. Um, the, uh, Kluge and Jonsen. Jonsen's situation was, as a young person, he ended up uh, migrating westward. So he was born in Pomerania, which is now, which was then part of Germany, now part of Poland. He migrated west westwards with his mother uh, to Mecklenburg, where Jahrestage, the anniversaries, uh, is also set. Um, his father served in was forced to serve in the military uh but none of them were collaborators uh none of the family members none of the immediate family members were collaborators in any other sense to my knowledge yeah and sorry i didn't mean to put you on the spot like do you have their whole family tree in front of you (laughs) You important question though because the each author regardless of whether their immediate family members were involved they they nonetheless uh pose the question pose questions about germany's general Involvement, right? And so their characters. So, for example, Gesine Crespo, the unforgettable main character of of, of anniversaries in Jonsen's work, uh, tells the family tells the whole story of her family in the fictional setting of Jericho in Mecklenburg in the, in northeastern Germany, uh, and basically walks through the rel- the the various uh, culpabilities or uh, attempts of resisting the Nazis and so on. Uh, by telling the story of her family. And the fact that that story is by itself fictional, but of course it's based on actual historical experiences uh, that various people had. And so that's really, Anniversaries is really the, 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 the best work to look at uh, for people interested in uh, life under fascism uh, from a literary uh, perspective. And I, wanna, I, I, I don't want to fail to mention that the, the entire epic, which in the German edition is about uh, 1,900 pages long, has now been translated into English by Damien Searles. It was published last year, I think, or maybe the year before, uh, Anniversaries. And so it's available to uh, readers of English also. It's a very exciting feat and an impressive accomplishment, I will say. Um, So let's now focus in on each of the the authors and chapters individually. Um, Let's start with Weiss. You you gave some of his um, biographical details um, already. So um, unless there's um, anything else you want to include there, we, we can move on to the specifics about his work. Uh, well, I did, maybe just for, for Weiss's biography, I think it's important. So I mentioned 1945 as the caesura of, of political time that's important for each author. 
for Weiss and Janssen, 1968 is also a big uh, is also a big and important year. Uh, Janssen's work, of course, is set in 1968. 1968 is also this kind of signifier of uh, of of the possibility, or maybe one of the, the possibilities of larger social change, both in the East and in the West. And 1968 was an important year for Weiss, who's who who stepped back, stepped out of the the disappointments of the of the student protest movements and so on, and the 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 suppression of the Prague Spring, which we'll probably talk about, is the is one of the uh, last important reform uh, movements within the socialist age. Weiss stepped out of those experiences and wrote the aesthetics of resistance, also to process uh, disappointments about the about the prospects of political change. And so that was important. Right before that, he had written two plays that I want to mention that with which listeners may be more familiar. One is the investigation, the Ermittlung, which is based on the Auschwitz. Uh, trials in Frankfurt that Weiss attended, and then another play uh, is the the Marassad play, which is also uh, which also became internationally uh, well known. That's I just wanted to fill the, those pieces in about Weiss's biography, but we're I'm happy to turn to the to the specifics of the of the aesthetics of uh, resistance with you. Yeah, can I ask you a, a question about the sure. play? Um, you said he attended the the, the Auschwitz trial. Yes, um, was. Why? Why did he feel the need to do? Was it was it research because he knew he was going to write a play, or was this just? I think it was part of his. Just, I mean, each of the writers uh, were always uh, had an insatiable thirst for knowledge about what was going on mm-hmm. and about how Germany would would uh, how the how the prosecution of 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 the war crimes and crimes against humanity perpetuated by Nazi Germany. Uh, would be dealt with, and so there was a personal interest in that that Weiss had very much as as somebody whose whose uh, family was was displaced uh, because of their Jewish identity uh, was was keen on attending and 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 did so uh, and and I don't know that if he knew for sure that he would write a play coming out of that, but his play, the investigation is very is carefully is very documentary, very uh, specifically based on his uh attendance of the of the of the of those trials and um he he changed the material or he or i should say he organized the material in order uh, uh to turn it into a play that could be performed within you know two hours or so uh but it was an it was uh it was a very important moment where the and, and a very important contribution to the kind of public debate about german uh responsibility that had up to that time not been front and center in the kind of uh, public sphere of, of the country, of, of West Germany, or uh, in East Germany is a little bit of a different case, but it's interesting that the investigation was performed uh, simultaneously in East and West Germany when it premiered in 65, I think. Um, okay, so I, I sorry, it took a, a little aside there. Um, okay. um, the, so the major work of his that you, you focus on in this book is about anti-fascist resistance. How... Yes. Explain to us why the, he st- why he chose that as, mm-hmm. as the topic, mm-hmm. um, and then I'll, I'll ask you some stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a there's a sense, and this is also maybe a little bit biographical as well. There's a sense that Vice had. I think it's fair to say, and I don't mean this in a bad way, that but that he himself missed, as as it were, the opportunity to do more against the Nazi terror than he was able to, or than he, or that he could. Uh, at the time, he would have been in his. Uh, he would have turned twenty in nineteen thirty-six, to give you an idea. Mm-hmm. And he said uh, one one thing. He said is that he wrote this story to, to 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 document what he earlier had not been able to see or to be a part of. And so, uh, while it's a fictitious, it's a fictional story. It's also uh, uh, st- uh, based strongly on uh, historical facts. And two main problems that he deals with in the work, or two mo- main motivations is to work through the historical weakness of the left's, the, the political left's opposition to Nazism, a weakness that in part stemmed from the fact that it was not uh, entirely unified between communists and social democrats and other kinds of democrats uh, and whatnot. And so one of the, uh, 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 one he focuses a lot at the beginning in the first volume of the three-volume work on the Spanish Civil War and the failed, the failed attempt to save the, the Republic. 
Uh, and then another main historical problem, of course, that he's dealing is with the kind of Stalinist deformation of, of the left through the rise of the Soviet Union and its kind of takeover of the, of the Third International. And so those are, those are some of the uh, uh, main historical problems that he's working through. But I try to show that his, uh, his, his story, the tale he tells about the anti-fascist resistance is of a greater and more general significance. And I, I, uh, it might be helpful in this context. I mean, we, we of course, you know, in the, in the 21st century, there's been a lot of uh, discussion and debate about the rise of authoritarian politics, of anti-democratic politics, and, and, that it's, and a rise that has compelled people to return to thinking about what fascism is. And we can get into that more if you like. But I like to point to um, Weiss's work or the significance thereof by referring to a, a passage by Primo Levi, who was a, uh, a Holocaust survivor who wrote about uh, each age having its own fascism, and, and, and who wrote about a fascism, the, the warning signs of which we see whenever the concentration of power denies citizens the possibility and the means of expressing themselves. Um, and Weiss's attempt to basically re reestablish the ability to express things, to uh, remake the German language, that, which is a language of the perpetrators, into a language that could reveal critique and and rehumanize the world in the in the in the wake of fascism uh, became, becomes an important impetus of uh of 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 his uh epic where would vice be on the political spectrum you you mentioned his uh you know obviously he disdained fascism and mm-hmm. bemoaned the um sort of the left's inability to unify um, in any, but then you also mentioned he wasn't a fan of Stalin. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So where would he be? He, in, um, in the sixties, he publicly declared his solidarity w- uh, with, with the socialist cause. Uh, but he retained a very um, tense relationship with actually existing states, such as East Germany. He visited East Germany many times he worked with uh, artists there, especially theater makers, uh, who were involved in staging his plays in East Germany and so on. And there is a definite um, commitment on Weiss's part to working through uh, the discourse of, and imagination, really, of Marxism to see if Marxism, to see if Marxist discourse still offered, uh, or, or to, to, to basically identify the resources of Marxist discourse to bolster the prospects of human uh, emancipation, whatever context they find themselves in. Uh, but uh, but he remained in Sweden throughout his life, and um, there's a way in which the, um, uh, the the work, the aesthetics of resistance, deals with the politics of the left. But what is more interesting than trying to than uh, uh, as I try to argue in different places, what is more interesting than pinpointing Vice's politics is to see how the work of literature, uh, how the how aesthetics of resistance uh, operates as a work of literature, which uh, involves politics but does not dictate politics, and that's a that can be a very fun and re- and revealing and rewarding experience, I think, for readers to see, um, given this general the general threat of dehumanization, what kinds of things we can do uh, uh, to respond to that and to ensure that we are still living lives of of quality and of uh, social responsibility. Does he give a prescription for that in the book? There's no prescription, but there are different modes and scenes. So one, one, of, the main, one of the main ways he does uh, that is by interacting, uh, by incorporating uh, many works of art into the narrative. And so one thing he does uh, towards the end of the Spanish Civil War, he has his narrators uh, uh, discuss things like Picasso's Guernica, all right, where... Weiss says, Weiss speaks about, uh, has his narrator speak about Guernica in that context, uh, or about Picasso rather, as someone who equated the struggle for truth in art with rebellion against demagoguery, right? And so um, uh, it's a good example of the ways in which uh, works of art are activated in the epic, both for clarifying uh, people's political uh, situations and thoughts about what they've, the kinds of experiences that they've undergone, but also to uh, re-motivate people to continue to attempt to resist and to articulate their yearnings and aspirations in ways that uh, don't grant the demagogues the, the, the upper hand or the final word. Um, so let's, um, let's wrap up Vice okay. um, and, and turn to Johnson. Um, mm-hmm. 
Johnson, as you mentioned, a little younger. Um, let's, let's his book sort of specifically looks at certain themes, German division and experiences with exile. But let's let's start with his biographical information. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Sure, that's fine. The uh, as I as I mentioned earlier, I think he was born in Pomerania, which Pomeran, which is uh, part of Germany prior to prior to the end of the war, uh, became part of Poland once the borders uh, shifted. He moved west westwards to Mecklenburg, which is uh, which was a, it's a it's a region in in it was in the GDR. He grew up in the GDR. His aspirations to become a writer, however, uh, met were met with difficulty in East Germany, and he famously described his emigration from from East Germany to. West Berlin in 1959 as a, as a relocation. I'm moving to Berlin, he said, of which uh, West Berlin was meant. Because and the part of the reason for that is that he could only publish his works, uh, such as the first uh, challenging modernist novel, speculations about uh, uh, Jacob. He could only publish them in the West because they were far the 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 the, the socialist regime in East Germany regarded them as far too uh, critical or or deviant in one way or another. Um, and so he uh, he didn't stay in West Berlin for very long. He actually traveled onward to uh, the United States, which he st- first visited in the early 60s. Uh, he lived in Italy for a time, spent a couple of years working in New York City, and then eventually settled on uh, in England in a town called Sheerness on the Sea, where he died in 1984. Prior to that, prior to his passing, he was able to complete the fourth and last volume of his epic Anniversaries, which is a, a wondrous uh, work detailing the fictional life of this Gazina Crespo that I mentioned. Uh, and it does so across an entire year, 1967 to 1968. He actually begins on uh, around August 20th, 1967 to end on August 20th, 1968, which I mentioned is a super important date because it's on the eve of the, of the Soviet suppression of the Prague Spring, which is where Gazina, his main character, is headed at the end of the story. So it ends very kind of ominously uh, in that way. Um, yeah. Can you, can you give, uh, obviously the, the choice of year for him is, is no mistake. Can you, can you right. give the listeners some background as to why that is? <laughs> uh, well, he's, uh, the, it's a very tumultuous year. Uh, it is, uh, it is a year, 1967, 68 is, uh, uh, is a year of great um, turmoil all over the globe. Uh, it's interesting uh, for for readers in the U.S., it'll be super interesting to look at anniversaries because it's set in New York City, and Jonsson uh, pays a lot of attention to all of the social uh, strife uh, that is going on in New York City and the country uh, at that time. There, he works a lot with the New York Times, a newspaper that is integrated into the epic as a kind of uh, another resource of its narration, let's say, and uh, he deals a lot of, or he, he tracks kind of the, both the violence in the U.S. at the time as a, as a domestic challenge and uh, details the uh, escapades of the U.S. military in Vietnam and the protests, uh, and the protests against the war at that, at that time. Elsewhere, uh, Prague is a focus um, for, for Jonsson, uh, because it is in Prague at this time that the, the Czechoslovak Socialist Party is seeking to liberalize society and seeking to uh, make socialism more democratic or to outfit it with a, a so-called human face, as the, as the phrase went at the time. And that was very interesting because to Jonsson also, I think, and of course to his character as well, because of their Gesine, who is herself an emigre of, of East Germany, is, uh, is still interested in the socialist project as an idea. But of course, has suffered from its uh, dictatorial def- uh, deformations across uh, the history of her life, and so the sign that uh, in Prague or in the in the Czechoslovak Republic <clears throat> that that socialism could be made more humane again and be made more democratic again, and could be actually brought in line with the interests and needs uh, of human beings and citizens, uh, was super exciting. And so the no- the 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 anniversary anniversaries really. Um, derives a lot of its uh, force from its exploration of the uh, of the attempt to 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 make a make a better make make a better socialism I guess to put a better socialism into the world let's say um, was was Johnson sort of demoralized after 68 and how it turned out yes I think so I think it's fair to say uh, he kind of, he was always a little bit he was always a very private person and kind of reclusive. Although I had the 
opportunity to uh, uh, peruse his uh, library and his uh, and his posthumous papers in Rostock, where they're housed on a, on a research visit there. It's super exciting because you see how much he actually followed uh, other writers and followed uh, the the kind of history of the times in such detail. And so uh, he had he had volumes by he had Weiss's works and Kluge's works in his library with notes, you know, written in the text that I that I, of course, read with great interest. But he became reclusive and retired, uh, re- retreated, let's rather, uh, to, to, a small, uh, to that small town in England in order to complete, uh, in, to complete the, the epic, but uh, did not have uh, a tremendous amount of, uh, of interaction with, with others uh, during that time. It's actually very sad that he was found dead in this apartment there uh after being missed uh, for for several days and so it's kind of a melancholic melancholic end to his life and some people have described the anniversaries in terms of this melancholy but i actually try to tease out the ways in which it's quite a hopeful and interesting work that remains that has something a lot to say about the prospects of 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 political practice and social emancipation even though the story that it invests the history that it invests in so much uh, was uh, was suppressed by the Soviets. So it's not the problem is uh, for Gazina. The problem is that the Prague Spring gets uh, put down. But the book uh, abounds in such an interesting progressive imagination that you can go back through and read um, and read about the uh, Johnson's mediation of New York City life and his uh, interrogation of, of socialist practices and actually come away with a greater understanding of, of uh, the possible resources of, a, of an emancipatory uh, politics. Uh, let me ask you sort of for comparison's sake, how, how did the other two handle 1968? How, how did they, how did they see, see it sort of in terms of it, its historical importance and how do they deal with the disappointment of sort of its, of its failures? Yeah, the, so it's present in all three of their works, most so in Jonsson's. Kluge has a lot of stories about 68 as well. Um, he, uh, I would argue, though, that he tends to take a, a more ironic and, and kind of removed uh, uh, approach to, uh, to the prospects of social transformation at that time. And that's one of the strange conundrums about Kluge's work, which seems, on the one hand, it seems equally invested in the kind of emancipatory politics that one can ascribe to Weiss uh, and Jonsson, but it um, it is hard to see uh, in, in how, hard, harder to see, I think, in Kluge how it would uh, translate into kind of uh, political practice. Hmm. Um, Johnson also he, he sort of seems to think a lot about the division of Germany. Yes, right. Um, why? I mean, he, he wasn't living there. Uh, why, why was this such an important thing for him to think about? I, uh, I think for him especially, but also for Weiss in a, in a different way, less so for Kluger perhaps, uh, for Jonsson, it's really about the loss of a home, uh, and having forced to, I mean, on the one hand, as a young person, of course, he's forced to migrate westward, uh, as I mentioned, uh, he's essentially finds himself forced to leave the GDR, even though he would have preferred to have remained uh, in in East Germany, and I think that that's a, that is a kind of that is an experience that uh, he was never able to forget or overcome. And in fact, it plays a large role in Gazina's in Gazina's uh, story because Gazina uh, says, for example, she's narrating this the story of her family to to her daughter Marie, and says at one point she says, "Where where I am from no longer exists, and therefore we don't have a home." Right is the is the thing to be extrapolated from it, and and ever since emigrating, she is looking for a home and cannot find one. Uh, and New York is is for her and her daughter. She says only an imagined home. Uh, she she resides there, but it never come comes to be a home in this more emphatic, uh, emotionally important sense. Uh, towards the end of the novel, her identification with the with reform socialism as Prague is uh, figures as a possible home. Uh, but in general, I think the experience of, of exile in Weiss and Jonsson renders this question of how to have a home or where to have a home or what are the conditions of belonging to a home uh, super important. And that, of course, is a, is a, is a, is a big issue that Epic deals with uh, that, that, that remains with us, with us in our times and is something that definitely distinguishes the modern Epic or rather the post-catastrophic Epic of, of these authors 
from the ancient epic of yore, which is really about establishing uh, through a nationalizing narrative, a kind of uh, a kind of home and collective to which one belongs. Uh, Janssen and Weiss's characters don't uh, don't easily find uh, the homes and collectives to which they wish to belong. Yeah, it, it seems obvious, but I I, I just want to you know sort of highlight that their their personal experiences, their life experiences, really do shape what they're writing about. And absolutely, and and I think it's just important that we. You know, of course, they're going to, you know, Janssen wants to talk about exile and division because he's he's been driven yeah. from his home. And, um, and, yeah, and it's super interesting, if I may just follow up. To sure. that. I mean, it's super interesting because both both Weiss's narrator and Janssen's character, Gesine Crespal, have been discussed as kind of alter egos of the writers uh, and sometimes even criticized for that. Um, but but it's important. In re- in, for anyone interested in reading these books, it's super important because it's the, by crafting these fictional stories about such people who are related to themselves but ultimately different and distinct and not real, right? They are able to process the hardships which they themselves they themselves have suffered. And I think that so what emerged that's one of the hope, really important hopeful things about these epics, which really they abound in the narration of catastrophe and suffering and, and, and genocide and death, and yet they are so optimistic and hopeful and, and do not yield. They, they nowhere yield um, in, their, in their kind of hopefulness for, 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 for better living and, be, and a better age and a better time. And I think that that's really something, especially now, you know, with the things we're currently facing, I think is uh, something to be to hold on to in, in terms of the of what literature can do in terms of offering both consolation but also a sense of a future that is distinct from the present. However, however bleak the present appears, there can be a, a qualitatively different future. So let's let's shift gears now and let's talk. Make sure we get uh, give Klug equal time, particularly yeah. for his his biography and his work. Um, so let, let's start with the same the same pattern. Um, give us some biographical background on him. Sure. Kluge grew up in the town of Halberstadt, which is uh, located. It's in the state called Sachsen-Anhalt of Germany, which uh, uh, which was part of the also part of East Germany after the war. Um, Halberstadt was bombed heavily by uh, by uh, the uh, American uh, air force uh, near the end of the war, uh, and uh, Kluge ended up. Uh, go uh, uh, migrating with his mother as a young person to Berlin, where he completed his uh, high school uh, in West Berlin, and then after that went on to study in Western Germany, West Germany, uh, in Marburg, and then in Frankfurt. Where in Frankfurt, I mentioned Frankfurt because that's of course where the Frankfurt uh, uh, School is located, Institute for Social Research, which was reconstituted after the war. Uh, Adorno and Hor- uh, Theodor Adorno and T- uh, Max Horkheimer go back there uh, after. Uh, their exile in the U.S. go back to reconstitute the institute, and Kluge met them and worked with them uh, in the '60s, and can be really regarded as a kind of uh, as someone who continues the tradition of critical theory in the specific sense of the Frankfurt School's work. Uh, I mentioned Halberstadt, his hometown, also because one of his most memorable story complexes is the air raid on Halberstadt, so uh, which uh, is included in the Chronicle of Feelings. Uh, that I discuss, and it's also been translated, so it's accessible uh, uh, in English uh, to listeners if they're interested. I, I really uh, recommend it because it's a super uh, fascinating but also very unusual way of narrating uh, the story about the, the bombing of one's hometown. And that absolutely for Kluge also is a traumatic loss akin to the loss of home that we talked about in Weiss and Janssen that he deals with uh, by creating, I call it a story complex, it, it's, it creates basically a multimedial narrative about that bombing uh, in, order to, uh, in order to process what happened and in order to show what literature, uh, what literature can, but also kind of has to do in order to tell a story about something that, that, that uh, is not readily, cannot be readily or easily captured by just uh, speaking about it. One of the things I wanted to ask you about Clue, he seems to embrace um, different forms of, of sort of visual media in his work. Yes, um, and and that struck me as different than the other two. Um, not that the other two were devoid of it entirely, but he, he seemed to f- more fully embrace it. Uh, it. Tell us why, and then sort of what 
certain media was he using? What what was he looking for? Yes, absolutely. It's a, it's a great question because the uh, my argument in, on a general level, my argument about the modern epic is that it's it's it it, it deals extensively with other media of society, and that is necessary. Literature is obviously not a, a self. Uh, it, it, literature is one medial discourse among uh, uh, many others. It is no longer a leading one. Uh, Weiss and Weiss, Jonsson and Kluge all know this. Weiss and Jonsson, however, basically they 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 compose their epics uh, in such a way that one comes away with a sense it's also about the triumph of the of the printed word or the written word or the printed word, let's say. And so they don't include other. Uh, other media in their epics, they they discuss them and they incorporate them, but they're but they're always transformed into uh, the written word. Whereas Kluge doesn't. He allows the different media, or he puts a lot of visual media into his stories and allows each kind of component to stand on its own. And I think there are different reasons for that. Uh, Kluge, of course, also worked uh, extensively as a filmmaker uh, in West Germany. Uh, he's done other. Uh, he's done a lot of different video. Works and I think he really wants to highlight that the the importance of the different ways of accessing reality, right? And so each medium, each 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 medium will have a different kind of approach to reality. And in the innovative realism that I'm ascribing to the modern epics work, um, each each mode, let's say, is uh, can uh, is important on its own. Uh, and and Kluge is keen on highlighting uh, the plurality or the diversity, let's say. Of media and uh, incorporates them uh, different media into his storytelling in order to show how diversified literature itself uh, can and must become. And this is something, of course, that remains uh, remains remains important uh, under conditions of, of full full blown digitalization too. So um, one can imagine that future pure mutations of the modern epic would become increasingly digital. Did he have any any resistance to all the sort of like embracing this sort of I guess for lack of a better word like this technology, um, or did he just see it as another vehicle to? I guess what I'm maybe asking is, was he concerned with the number of people who were going to look at his see his work, and was he trying to get it you know make it maybe more accessible or? Yes, yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question because one one thing that I argue is that the you know the. Weiss and Janssen's books are very long, and uh, it could be said hard to read, hard to get into, although, of course, I think they're totally worth getting into. Um, in a way, Janssen's becomes a little bit easier to get into simply by the fact that he has one entry, one chapter, if you will, for each day of the year. So you have 365 or six uh, chapters. You can kind of take them, uh, take them each, each chapter can be taken on its, on its own, although, of course, they also add up into this larger story. With Kluge, the modern epic changes, uh, and that's one of the important parts of my book is to show that the modern epic changes into uh, into an assembly of stories that can that are many of which are interrelated, but they no longer congeal into any single main overarching storyline in the way the other two books do. And so, part of what he does, and 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 many of his individual stories are super short, and he wanted them to be short. You can read uh, a Kluge story. Um, uh, you know, in a in a short amount of time, uh, uh, and he thought that this itself was a way of kind of democratizing, if you will, access to the to the epic imagination. That is not to say that I mean it's interesting, of course, to to, to find, uh, and which I try to show also in my chapter about Kluger, that even the shortest Kluger story is super complex, so you can spend a long time uh, on a on a short story. But the, his work in different media is also a way of of increasing access to. Uh, to the creative imagination. And so I think it's fair to say that all of his efforts in kind of ecum- this ecumenical out- outreach, if you will, uh, to put to put his creative creativity and imaginative work out there in all kinds of different formats is a way of increasing access. The other thing, though, is that Kluge has himself said that writing is really writing. He, he likes to write most of all, and writing is really his main medium. And so it's interesting that starting with the Chronicle of Feelings, which was published in 2000, um, that inaugurated a, a series of these epically structured works that are all very large individual tomes, let's say, uh, where he assembles his stories. And so it's uh, for that reason, I feel it's warranted to discuss Kluger's literary output in terms of a in terms of a of a permutation, but also a continuation of the modern epic genre. Yeah, can you give the the listeners a sense as to just generally how prolific that these three individuals were 
Yeah, that's a, that's the first question I got when I told people the kind of book uh, I was writing. They said, oh my God, "How do you have time to do that?" <laughs> uh, because they're they're really just long. The 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 aesthetics of resistance is about twelve hundred pages long. It comes atop Weiss's uh, writing of a of a number of di- different plays. Uh, uh, I'm not sure exactly how many, maybe more than half a dozen, I'm sure. Uh, Klug, uh, Jonsson wrote several novels. Jonsson is one who wrote only in prose, or primarily in prose, I should say. Uh, wrote several novels prior to embarking on this uh, anniversaries project, which is which uh, clocks in about 1,900 pages in the German. And then Klug's, Klug's Chronicle of Feelings is itself 2,000 pages long. After that, he has uh, published. It's, it's really remarkable. I, I don't know how he does it. Uh, Part, it probably involves not sleeping very much. He's <laughs> continued to put books out, uh, 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 assemblies of stories that are hundreds and hundreds of pages um, each, uh, and so it's really quite remarkable. And by and, you know there there are probably not many people in the world who have read all of Kluge's uh, works. I certainly haven't, but I feel like it's super fun to get into them. And the way he constructs his books uh, enables readers to get into them at any point. It's just so interesting. And, and you can just kind of rummage around in them. And so, uh, so like the other two books, they, they become very fun books to kind of live with, so to speak, and to, to reach for, uh, even in random ways where you can kind of reside in these books for a while uh, and, and take things out of back out, take things out of them back into your everyday life, which each author would have appreciated. Kluge said, you know, the first thing he says in Chronicle of Feelings is like, look, we people need orientation in their lives. And I want to, and my storytelling is not just for its own sake, but also to provide uh, people with with uh, orientation in their lives, a sense that they're not alone, uh, a kind of a kind of parallel world in which they reside for a while, but also helps them uh, reestablish re- uh, relationships with with people, with people in their own world. And so the fact that that li- that this kind of literature really deals with this in- with interpersonality and front and center in such uh, endearing and suggestive ways has really been something that um, that I think uh, lingers on as a kind of legacy out of this out of this storytelling. Yeah, and so definitely all three of them have a sense though of what they're doing with these major works, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, they, they, they know going in, but uh, yeah, I, I thank you for highlighting just how prolific the, these three are. They, they all wrote a lot. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, yeah. They all, they all wrote a lot. They um, could not do otherwise. I think that was the, it was their way of living, right? They, 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 their way of living. And, you know, somewhere Jonsson says, I'm holding my, I think, no, sorry. It's white vice who says I'm holding myself upright with the, with, by crafting this novel. Right. And so what I write there becomes true for me and part of my world. And it's so fascinating that in doing so, he outfitted the world that he narrates there. He outfitted our world in such a way as that it can be uh, turned into our, our own, to, to, to be turned into something that's more home-like because we find we have a place therein, which is super interesting uh, in, in, in terms of the aesthetics of resistance because he starts from a position, his uh, characters are, are marginalized, proletarian, uh, working-class folks who don't have immediate access. And he shows how they can aspire to gain access and how they they turn the world into something that can that, that they can call their own is a really aspirational kind of tale. Uh, just a more basic question. Did any of the three of them ever aspire to be or were asked or guest lectured? Were any of them ever worked at a university? Uh, they, uh, <laughs> yes and no. So hmm. the, they were they were invited, uh, both Jonsson and... Uh, and Kluge were invited to give uh, lectures as uh, at, at, um, as kind of the what do they call it in English the uh, poetic lectures or there's, oh, a yeah. kind of, there's a series there's a series in Frankfurt I think they were where they, they were doing they were invited as guest uh, guest writers essentially mm-hmm. to deliver lectures about their craft uh, and so in that sense they worked at universities but they were none of them are academic academics in a usual sense. And I think that there's, uh, I think there's something to be said for that, that the, the modern epic of this kind uh, would pr- not only could it not emerge from within the middle of the German nation, which doesn't exist in any straightforward way uh, during the cold war, it would have to come from the, mar- from the margins from outside of Germany, let's say um, in a literal case in, 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 in a literal sense in Weiss and Jonsson's case. Um, but uh, it could also not come from within uh, German academia, uh, and um, 
in any kind of straightforward way. So it, 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 it's, it, it, I think it's more imaginative and creative for, for not being, uh, let's say bogged down with the, with the, with the ins and outs of academic institutions, which is part of, part of my, might uh, afflict some of us. Sure. Yeah. And German academics at the time were yes. notoriously conservative and yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, so I was going to ask you to sort of make the broader case for why these individuals should be studied and why this should be, um, and, and, and something that people study, which I think you've been doing effectively over the last, you know, 55 minutes or so. Um, but is there anything else that you would sort of, what is the, I guess now, what is the future then of studying that the, these sort of these authors, the uh, Epic as a topic, I mean, what do you, where do, where would you go next if you yes. were? No, it's a, it's a good question. And I, I'll maybe take the occasion to, to, to highlight maybe as clearly as possible, uh, the value of this kind of study. I think, you know, I highlighted 1945 and also one could, 1968 and even 1989, the end of German division was also a kind of caesura of a passage from one age into another. And that's something that Kluge, who's the only one of the three to live through, uh, he's still living now, uh, the transition, uh, 1989, 1990, uh, uh, lived through that time also as a caesura. And it was hard in anticipating this interview, it was hard not to think of our current predicament with the COVID-19 threat as a kind of caesura, right? Where we think about our lives before and now during and hopefully one day after uh, the threat of the virus. And I think and I mentioned that because not only because a lot of us are confined to our homes and, uh, you know, may have may have time to read some of the things <laughs> that... Uh, that is that uh, escape us in when going about uh, other forms of, of living, uh, but I mention it because the the epic is really about a response to a need to kind of reset uh, and to re to take greater and broader stock of where we are, where how we got here, where we might be going, and so it's this kind of training in a long term imagination and thinking in a long durée that um, that the epic really contributes to. And one of the things I highlighted uh, in the book throughout is that epic actually develops our senses. You know, we have in a basic way, we each have five senses, right? But we also have senses for what is near and what is far in terms of a historical sense and in terms of, uh, in terms of trying to imagine other life contexts, which we are, which we don't experience directly. And I think that the, that the development of the human sensorium by way of the epic imagination has become uh, has always been important, but maybe becomes even more so now when we find ourselves in a situation of of confinement and fear about uh, what the what or what, the, what the future may bring, or or rather the problem is we don't even we're not even quite sure uh, what the what the future will look like at all. And I think that 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 taking a step back from the present and and spending time in 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 in, in epic thinking, let's say, can be of uh, great value. The other thing. Uh, given the difficulty of the works, you know, it was my, I don't do this so much in the U.S., but because I try to read the works in German, but when, when I have been in, when I have uh, had the opportunity to spend time in German-speaking Europe, I, I gained a lot by trying to read the works together as part of reading groups and with other people as part of a kind of public uh, uh, practice. And obviously right now our, our, our public sphere is, is, is very much hindered by the, uh, by the situation in which we find ourselves and uh, which maybe has um, uh, draws our attention to like the to to or to think or, or compels us to think about okay what 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 connects me to others and how do I communicate with others how do I continue to share a world with others what kind of projects can I pursue with other people uh, such that maybe even trying to read th- things together uh, with others whether on the internet or or, or via these digital uh, communications technologies and whatnot uh, whether that might uh, uh, have uh, have a new kind of value and 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 in think and in restoring something of the epic sense might by way of these works or others it doesn't have to be these we might be able to even get a handle on uh, our situation in ways that uh, uh, might otherwise fail us when we're too uh, inundated with the 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 news cycle of the uh, of of a twenty four hour uh, period. Um, so as a way to conclude discussion of your book, I always like to ask uh, authors to give us one or two things um, that you would really like somebody who picks up your book and reads it to take away from it. 
Yes, I think um, I think that the, what I was saying about the the literature's ability to extend, to contribute to, and extend and develop the the our our sense capacities, I think, is something that I would want people to take away too, uh, for people to appreciate how literature contributes to our imaginative and perceptive faculties. I think is uh, uh, is something. Uh, super interesting that and, and super important, right? I mean, there's a lot of a lot of debates right now, and, I, and I'll I'll link it back to the present again. Um, concerns about whether, for example, you, the United States right now is capable of of responding to the the threat of uh, the coronavirus effectively, right? The the discussions and controversies about the extent to which we live in a failed state or a failed society, and so on. I think. Uh, are super frightening, right? And and I think we are all frightened with justification. And there are many things that have to be done in the face of that fear and the threats that we face. But one thing that uh, that is that we all need also is a kind of consolation that literature can provide, even provide by authors who themselves lost their homes, right? Lost their countries, let's say, and were forced to forced to adapt to completely unprecedented. Uh, situations and come out, uh, come out telling these very unlikely tales. You know, in 1945, in the immediate after aftermath of World War II and the Holocaust, it was the caesura was uh, discussed in such a way that people thought it would not be possible to say anything at all, or to uh, that to say anything at all, most especially to 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 craft literature about the situation would be something of a of a of, of, a, of a sacrilege or a disservice or, or, or whatnot. As on the other hand. One had to process what was going, what had just happened, and what was uh, what the challenges of the present entailed. And I say, I think that literature has a lot to contribute. In other words, uh, to this kind of predicament. And so uh, that's what I would like to encourage readers to do: is to take up these uh, some of these works, uh, which you know, the the second volume of the Aesthetics of Resistance by Vice has just been translated. Also, very admirable translation available in English, uh, which is. Uh, Interesting to explore. So, are is um, all the main text now that you use in this book available in English? Uh, the as I say, anniversaries has been translated in its entirety. Uh, the first two volumes of Vice's three three volume Aesthetics of Resistance have been translated, and parts of Kluge have been translated. Not the whole, not not cover to cover, but but some of the chapters and story complexes, uh, such as the air raid story that I mentioned, uh, have appeared in English. Okay, great. Yeah, just for, for those looking forward in English, uh, <laughs> helpful to know right up front. Um, so uh, before I let you go, um, now that this book is done, uh, yes. um, if you could probably tell us what you're what you're working on now. Sure. I mean, the one of the pro- I'm currently I currently have two main longer term projects, each which each of which has uh, different parts, and one of them relates back to your question as as the question of well, where where does Epic go from here? Um, and at the end of the book, I point to other works. Um, that uh, that I would put into this tradition, and there are many other authors one could talk about in, uh, uh, from the from the German context. But one of the things I want to do is kind of develop further what I call somewhere in the book I talk about the hydro hydropoetics of epic and the 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 notion that uh, and this I try to evoke this by the cover of the book, which is a painting by. Uh, the American German painter uh, Leonor Feininger, the blue uh, blue marine, which he painted uh, at the Baltic, and I highlight some of the ways in the book. I highlight how the epic interacts with aquat- aquatic environments, right? So the seas and the rivers and so on uh, uh, can uh, are important to the storytelling. And so I I envision a new uh, a broader project called uh, Hydropoetics for the Rising Waters of a Sinking Age, where I would. Uh, address a broader array of works in Germanophone and European literature from the 20th and 21st centuries to continue to track uh, the kinds of things that the modern epic can do, how it makes or rewakes the world, how it interacts with with uh, the elements, and maybe uh, contribute uh, in 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 in, uh, in in exploring that maybe contribute something uh, to the environmental imagination. It's something I've kind of uh, been toying with for a while now with this uh, kind of hydro. Hydrocentric remapping of European culture. So, uh, what I mean by that is that, that I've adopted a kind of focus on the continent's watersheds to uh, avoid speaking about different nations, but rather talking about the different sites 
uh, often river sites like the Danube and the Rhine as sites uh, that are multicultural and, and, and that bring kind of different uh, uh, languages and cultures together that, uh, that are uh, interesting uh, to explore in that way. The, the project that I'm working on right now, though, in a most immediate way, uh, is about the first is about literature and politics in the first Austrian Republic. So from 1919 to 1934, it's a super uh, interesting period and constellation uh, between uh, the Austro- Austro- Austrian Social Democratic Party, which uh, has power in Vienna. And so there, uh, there, one, one speaks of a red Vienna that is governed by uh, the Social Democrats that kind of launches a super fascinating uh, period of, uh, of democratic, um, uh, de- democratic emancipation, urban modernization, and so on. And um, they unfortunately get shut down by the uh, by pr- and prematurely aborted, really, by the rise of fascism in Austria in the 1930s. Also, so I'm looking at the literature and politics of the interwar period in Vienna and Austria uh, to um, explore a kind of Austrian variant of the dialectic between political modernity and literary modernism that's specific to the site, but also kind of of exemplary value. Also, because it's the last place of democratic resistance uh, to fascism prior to the Spanish Civil War. And so in that way, it kind of is the pre-chapter to where Weiss begins his uh, epic. Well, I won't put any pressure on you, but when you're done <laughs> with these <laughs> projects um, and their books, um, I, would, I would love to have you back on the show to talk about them. It would be my pleasure. Yep. Um, and I, I definitely want to thank you again for coming on the show and talking to, to us about your book. Um, and, and congratulations on it being out and out for sale. And I, I would highly recommend everybody uh, listening go out and get it. Um, get it ebook right now. Don't go out. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. um, but uh, yeah, so I want again want to thank Dr. Miller for being on the show. Uh, the book title again is The German Epic in the Cold War. Um, it was published by Northeastern University Press. Um, thank you all for listening, and we will see you all next time. <laughs>